Good evening. This is Rob McClure along with Vicki Iden bringing you your local news via the WRT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. More than half of Wisconsinites think the state government is broken. That's according to the newest Marquette Law School poll, which dropped today. The poll surveyed more than 800 registered voters last week on a wide range of topics. Half of those surveyed were asked their views about state government. 60% said Wisconsin's government is broken, while 32% said Wisconsin's government is working as intended. Half of those surveyed were asked their views about federal government. 84% said Washington, D.C. is broken, while only 10% said Washington, D.C. is working as intended. Still, that didn't stop respondents from signaling their support for infrastructure spending. 53% of those surveyed said they were in favor of a $500 billion investment in infrastructure, while 37% said they were opposed. A new report finds that Ron Johnson, Wisconsin's senior U.S. senator, pushed for millions of dollars in tax breaks for three top Republican donors. The report by the investigative news outlet ProPublica finds that a provision inserted by Johnson in a 2017 tax overhaul bill enabled top donors Diane Hendricks and the Uline family to claim $215 million in tax deductions in 2018. The Ulines and and Hendricks are Ron Johnson's biggest donors, cumulatively contributing about $20 million to Johnson's 2016 re-election campaign. That market poll, incidentally, also did poll on views about Ron Johnson. It measured Johnson's favorability ratings at 42%. That is, 42% had an unfavorable view of Ron Johnson, while 35% they had a favorable view of the congressman, and 23% expressed no opinion. A potentially multi-billion dollar deal between an Oshkosh defense contractor and the federal government could be in jeopardy. Wisconsin-based Oshkosh Defense was slated to start rolling out new Postal Service trucks in late 2023. The defense contractor won a bid with the United States Postal Service for the rollout. But a losing bidder based in Ohio is challenging the fairness of the decision to award the contract to Oshkosh Defense. The Associated Press reports attorneys challenged the contract in June, and the legal wrangling could take months to decide as the first wave of the postal truck rollout approaches. Jeff Weigand has won a special election to fill Dane County's vacant District 20 seat. Weigand beat out four other write-in candidates to clinch the spot. The Capital Times reports that Weigand secured more than 440 votes in the special election. His three opponents netted less than 100 ballots each. The district includes portions of Sun Prairie, Marshall, Medina, and York. All of the contenders in this race were write-in candidates since no one filed the proper campaign paperwork ahead of the June 18th deadline. And now for your daily COVID-19 numbers sourced from the state's Department of Health Services. Wisconsin's rolling seven-day average currently stands at 1,121 new cases per day. Just north of 2.9 million Wisconsinites, about 49.8% of the state's total population, have completed their vaccination series. And now on to the rest of today's top stories. The hunt for Fitchburg's new top cop has been narrowed down to two finalists, but some Wisconsin social justice groups are raising red flags about one of the candidates. For more, we turn to WORT contributor Greg Jaboski. 
The city of Fitchburg is selecting a new police chief, and the choice is now down to two interviewed candidates, Lee Siebenick, a captain in the Salt Lake City Police Department, and Alfonso Morales, the controversial former police chief of Milwaukee. Morales was demoted from the chief's position by Milwaukee's Police and Fire Commission after numerous complaints about his handling of peaceful protesters and communities of color. He was reinstated after winning a court battle, but moved on after accepting a financial settlement. But Milwaukee-based civil rights organizations, such as the Milwaukee chapter of the NAACP, have opposed his hiring as a police chief again anywhere. The Milwaukee-based immigrants' rights organization, Voces de la Frontera, also adamantly opposes his Fitchburg candidacy. Here is Christine Newman Ortiz, executive director of Voces de la Frontera, who spoke to WORT yesterday. Many people of color organizations were extremely disappointed in his failed leadership and are grateful that he's gone. He is unfit to represent in that capacity a city that has a significant percentage of people of color, as the city of Fitchburg does. We were working on updating the standard operating procedure for immigration and racial profiling. It required the intervention of the Fire and Police Commission at the time to actually force his hand to meaningfully engage with us to update the SOP. And not just Wolfs, but many people of color organizations shared a common experience with him being arrogant, dismissive, and having no meaningful dialogue around issues that mattered for the community, like police accountability, immigration, the experiences of protesters during the Black Lives Matter uprising. A week ago Tuesday, August 3rd, the city of Fitchburg held a public forum with the then four remaining police chief candidates. WORT News was there and asked Morales about how he would answer his critics in Milwaukee. I believe I can serve the uh, community of Fitchburg just like I serve the community in Milwaukee. I can tell you if you talk to the residents of Milwaukee, both Hispanic, both uh, African American, and the other cultures that are white and Asian, they will all tell you that uh, they respect the police department and that I did a fairly good job. And what I mean by that is sometimes you can't do everything that a particular group wants you to do. And that's where a group like Voces de la Frontera that wants law enforcement to denounce federal law enforcement ICE is something that's difficult. A politician won't do it, but a police officer who swears to uphold the laws and constitutions of the municipality, the state of Wisconsin, and the United States. Morales stood out among the candidates last Tuesday as being the only one who would agree to have their department cooperate with the Federal Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. For example, the city of Madison and Dane County do not cooperate with ICE, except in extremely narrow circumstances. Newman Ortiz said it is the very constitutional standards cited by Morales that should keep local police from cooperating with ICE. Under the Trump administration, they were really trying to coerce local government and especially local law enforcement to be an arm of immigration enforcement. Newman Ortiz detailed one incident in Milwaukee. Um, There was a very specific instance where the posture that he was taking was, no one needs to worry, our policy is good enough. You're safe, that's what he told one of our members. And the fact is, is that we got an emergency call from a family that was surrounded by Milwaukee Police Department and ICE. ICE had called them without a judicial warrant 
and they had completely surrounded this family, a father and a mother who were taking their kids to school. Morales then falsely told members of the Farm Police Commission that this guy was a felon, tried to really mischaracterize who he was. When asked by WRT last week about this particular incident, Morales doubled down in defense of his cops working with ICE. I know there was a case in Milwaukee where ICE agents came up to a father who was taking their young child to school, surrounded them, and took them away, and apparently this included cooperation with Milwaukee police uh, before doing this. How is that justified in terms of uh, cutting down on violence? Uh, well, you're asking that question, sir. And I can tell you, we can continue to go back on things in Milwaukee or work on Fishburne. But just to answer your question, when a law enforcement agency calls for assistance to another law enforcement agency, it's the law enforcement agency at the street level is going to respond to assist another law enforcement agency. Newman Ortiz outlined what her organization saw as inappropriate responses to peaceful protest by the Milwaukee Police Department under then-Chief Morales. Under his leadership, it was approved to use tear gas. There were incidents where peaceful protesters were beaten and tear gas was used. And this is something that I think have contributed greatly to the ouster. Relations with communities of color will be important to the Fitchburg chief's job. WORT spoke to a Fitchburg resident, identified as shy, and her uncomfortable experiences with Fitchburg cops. Fitcherberg is a place that is very discriminatory regarding how they treat their residents there and the police presence. Like in the apartment building I live in, police just come and sit in the parking lots, which wouldn't be odd or a problem if they went everywhere in Fitchburg. They only come to certain neighborhoods. That was shy, a Fitchburg resident. According to Sarah Olson, human resources manager in the city of Fitchburg, the Fitchburg Police and Fire Commission will conduct further interviews and make a final decision for police chief in executive session on Wednesday, September 15th. A final session for public comment will be held starting at 5 p.m. right before the executive session. For WRT 6 o'clock news, I'm Greg Jaboski. Earlier this year, Governor Tony Evers attempted to legalize cannabis in his biennial budget. The legislature's Republican-led budget committee axed the idea, but now there's a new attempt to legalize weed in Wisconsin. For more, we turn to WORT reporter Jade Isiri Ramos, who went to South Beloit for this story. The Sunnyside Cannabis Dispensary is just across the Wisconsin-Illinois border. If you're driving on I-90 coming from Madison, it's the first exit after the Welcome to Illinois sign. In the parking lot, most cars have Wisconsin license plates, and also in the parking lot, from Wisconsin, is State Senator Melissa Agard championing cannabis legislation. We are past time ready for a statewide discussion about this policy and moving Wisconsin in the right direction. Wisconsin is an island of prohibition. Prohibition has not worked when it comes to alcohol, it did not work when it came to margarine, and it's not working when it comes to cannabis. Prohibition in Wisconsin is leaving us behind, and we urgently need to change the policies of our state. Agard, who represents Madison, introduced similar legislation twice before when she was a state representative. Agard points to three main reasons for legislation, addressing racial disparities, investing in Wisconsin's family farms, and stimulating the economy. She says attitudes have changed since her first attempt in 2013. Values have changed not only in Wisconsin, but across our nation as more states have moved forward with Illinois' legislature not through um, a ballot initiative, but actually through legislative action, having passed this bill, we're seeing the direct impacts on a community right across the border, Midwestern values. Under the bill, cannabis would be taxed and regulated much like alcohol. 
The bill would allow adults 21 years and older to possess up to two ounces of cannabis and six plants for personal use. Selling to anyone under 21 would still be illegal, and it would also be illegal to sell cannabis without a permit. Representative David Bowen, a Democrat from Milwaukee, is the lead author on the assembly bill. He says that this bill aligns with his main policy goal of eliminating racial disparities in the state. The war on drugs has done nothing to curb drug use, but has continued to criminalize being black. Enforcement of cannabis prohibition laws have disproportionately impacted communities of color. Almost one out of four incarcerated individuals in the state of Wisconsin are charged with drug-related offenses. And while only 6% of the population of Wisconsin is black, they account for 40% of the state's prison population. Even more concerning, over the last 10 years, drug sentences for black men have been 10% longer than white men. The bill includes a path to expungement for people who have been convicted of a weed-related crime that is decriminalized under the bill. Their convictions wouldn't be immediately overturned, but they could petition for expungement and dismissal of the conviction. Additionally, under the bill, someone couldn't lose their job or government subsidies because of a positive THC drug test. Representative Mark Spritzer represents part of Rock County, where in 2018, on an advisory referendum, 69% of voters supported cannabis legalization. We are just minutes from the Wisconsin border. That means that our state is losing out on millions of dollars in revenue each year. And my legislative district is losing revenue as people drive here to South Beloit to pay taxes just across our border. It's estimated that in Wisconsin, the legal cannabis industry would make about $165 million in taxes per year. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jade Isiri Ramos. Today, state lawmakers considered a bill that would ban the teaching of critical race theory in Wisconsin schools. Critical race theory involves examining the intersection of race and social structures, such as the law and government. Our producer, Jonah Chester, takes the story from there. The bill, which was before two state committees today, doesn't outright ban critical race theory. Or at least the term critical race theory isn't mentioned in the specific text of the legislation. Instead, the proposed law calls for a ban on, quote, race or sex stereotyping in Wisconsin schools. The bill faces long odds, as it currently has no Democratic co-sponsors and faces a likely veto from Governor Tony Evers. In addition to banning critical race theory education for students, the legislation would also prohibit teaching those concepts to teachers and school staff. Violating the bill's provisions would open districts up to potential lawsuits from parents and the loss of state financial aid. Senator Kathy Bernier, a Republican from Chippewa Falls, argued that critical race theory frames history and white people's role in that history in unfair terms. I'm also of German descent. I had nothing to do with the Holocaust, and I think it was deplorable. But it doesn't make me guilty of the Holocaust. And I think that's where we're talking past each other in how to present race differences or the ethnicity differences in our country. Representative Lakeisha Myers, a Democrat from Milwaukee, raised concerns about the financial implications of the legislation. Myers is a former history teacher who also holds a Ph.D. in education. Per the bill, a school is open to penalties if a lesson makes a student feel, quote, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress because of the individual's race or sex. If, that is the in, if that's the intent of the bill, then the state of Wisconsin and every other state legislature in the country that is proposing something similar to this 
should be prepared to go bankrupt. Because the way American history has occurred, everybody will be left with hurt feelings, psychological distress, and discomfort. It comes with being a human and telling the truth about our history in this country and abroad. Also today, committee members considered a bill that would require districts to post their learning materials and education activities online. That legislation is virtually identical to a similar provision in the critical race theory bill. Libby Sobik is the education director for the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, a conservative legal firm. She says that parents who want to get access to a school's learning materials and curricula occasionally have to file an open records request. Per Wisconsin state law, governmental entities can charge occasionally exorbitant fees for those records. My colleagues at the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty actually tested this theory. We submitted open records requests to 10 school districts around the state. Madison Public Schools required us to pay $10,000 for these materials. It is untenable to ask our parents to pay hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to access materials. In addition to the ban on critical race theory in schools, state lawmakers are considering a similar bill that would prevent teaching the ideology to state and local government employees. In a blog post, Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway wrote that that proposal was, quote, an attempt to place a gag order on any public discourse that acknowledges the institutions of slavery, Jim Crow, restrictions on voting rights, or redlining, unquote. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. Time is now 6.23 and you're listening to the local evening news on WORT. What is the true impact of critical race theory? And what could a potential ban on its teaching or discussion mean for Wisconsin students? To analyze today's legislation and committee hearing, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Kevin Lawrence Henry Jr., an assistant professor of educational leadership and policy analysis at UW-Madison. As somebody who studies the intersection of race and education and anti-blackness in our schools, what do you make of this ongoing debate over critical race theory? You know, while the concept and, and sort of the controversy around it has been around for years on a, a bit of a slow simmer, it's only relatively recently floated to sort of the, the forefront of political discourse, most recently here in Wisconsin, but really across the country. Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. Uh, I am in some ways baffled uh, that we are having a conversation about an academic theory that has developed uh, and been developed since the 1970s and 80s um, in law schools. But what I think this moment, this historical moment that we're in following the Trump presidency and the election of Biden with uh, overwhelming numbers of African-Americans and uh, people of color who have gone out to vote, I think, if I recall correctly, the largest um, voter turnout in the history of the United States. I think this uh, piece of legislation really is a turning point for us about uh, where do we see ourselves in the future and who do we want to become right now. And what this piece of legislation um, lays bare is the mythology of this country that says that the best ideas and efforts will rise to the top. Rather, I think what we're seeing happening with uh, conservative legislators trying to ban conversations around equity, around critical thinking, around actually historical accuracy is a perversion of the ideals of democracy and truth and knowledge. And so to support this kind of legislation would be to, to live under 
a type of consensual hallucination where what is right is wrong and what is wrong is right. So I think our children deserve better, and I think our teachers deserve better. And I think the fact that we are unable to deal honestly with facts and history and genuine efforts to uh, make a more perfect union is really a threat to our democracy. And so for me, I think these larger concerns around censorship, around, in fact, what the harsh financial penalties of this legislation would do to districts is really damning. And we have to take a look at ourselves to see if this is who we really want to be. During today's public hearing, there was there was sort of this persistent concern raised by some speakers that teaching about these concepts enforces this idea to white children that they are to blame for these historical events. What do you make of that argument? How do, how do you respond to that? Yes, I think we, we have to um, be careful uh, with the idea that discomfort in schooling or in education is inherently a bad thing. And what I mean to suggest here is that critical race theory and any analysis, uh, historical analysis of the past is not always pretty, but it's not about feelings. It's about facts. The Holocaust is not something that one should be joyous about. Enslavement is not something that one should feel comfortable about. The point of history is not only to tell the story of the past, but to help us to not relive those moments. And so I think the the challenge of feelings and comfort levels of students, we have to be careful with that because I feel uncomfortable in physics classrooms, but that does not mean that I did not have to take physics. I don't know much about stoichiometry, and I remember when I took the class, I didn't like it. I had anxiety going into it, but it was part of the curriculum, and it was part of a larger process of a liberal arts curriculum. And so I think we have to be careful not to privilege um some have called white fragility. And more to the point, critical race theory and larger conversations of equity and injustice is not about individual white children or individual white people. Rather, what these courses or concepts are about is thinking about systematic concerns, uh, systematic and institutional issues of racism and not individual concepts or individual acts of racism. And so, in general, critical race theory is not actually interested in the individual. It's interested rather in how institutions and large-scale policies and practices reproduce racial inequality, not what one person does in, in an effort to be prejudiced. So I think that there are some clear distinctions, and those that actually are familiar with the theory or actually care to read it, which it seems to me that many of our legislators aren't doing that, that there's a conflation of a few things But we have to be careful about outlawing what makes students feel uncomfortable in schools because lots of things make students feel uncomfortable, um, and we still continue to go with it. As I said, we do this in mathematics, we do it in science, but we don't see that level of discomfort. So rather, what we're having is a a type of whitewashing, shall we say, of history, Um, and that is uh, it serves no one, and it certainly doesn't serve our students, and it doesn't serve those that are trying to become um, active agents in their own lives, in other words, being citizens. Dr. Henry, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a fascinating conversation. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Kevin Lawrence Henry Jr. is an assistant professor of educational leadership and policy at UW-Madison. 
And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories up in the second half of the show. We'll get the week's happenings in local government on Downtown Abbey. We'll return to the headlines from August of 1967. And a comprehensive weather forecast, which will include a number of tornadoes upstate this afternoon. A lot to discuss, so stay tuned for that. But first, we'll take a quick break and then check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.32 and 40 seconds, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us for the second half. Do you know what the city council is up to this week? How about the Dane County Board? Each week, we turn to the Cap Times, Abigail Becker, for what you need to know about what your local government is up to. Here's the latest from Becker on all that is local on this episode of Downtown Abbey. All right, it is Wednesday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition, by our local government wizard, Abigail Becker. Abigail, how you doing this week? Hi, Jonah. I'm doing okay. And yes, this is a lovely weekly tradition we have here. Indeed it is. You know, it's always a high point of my week, figuring out what's going on in local government news. Let's go ahead and dive right in here. Uh, The Delta variant, in case you missed it, it's in the news a lot. And it's further disrupting some workplace plans for uh, county government employees. Can you give me the latest update for Dane County employees? What do they need to know going forward? Yeah, so due to this increase in COVID-19 cases, Dane County government employees who are currently teleworking, working from home, can continue to do so until the start of next year. Department of Administration Director Greg Brockmeyer announced the news Tuesday in an email to all employees. Um, And so, you know, bottom line, employees that can continue working remotely until January 3rd, 2022, unless otherwise directed by their department. Now, prior to Tuesday's announcements, county departments had finalized plans to transition to a hybrid workspace, meaning some staff in person and some staff working remotely. These plans were expected to take place September 7th, and employees working remotely were assured they could do so until then. Now, those transition plans are expected to begin next year. So the county is pushing back this plan uh, because of the Delta variant. Brock Mayer said there's an estimated 800 employees out of 2,400 who are currently working remotely. So this would affect those 800 employees. Now, last week, both Dane County and the city of Madison announced a requirement for their employees to be vaccinated or have a weekly negative COVID-19 test. This, of course, followed Public Health Madison and Dane County's recommendation on July 27th to wear masks indoors regardless of vaccination status. Uh, both changes are a response to the worsening state of the pandemic due to the more contagious Delta variant strain. According to Public Health, um, their latest data snapshot for July 19th to August 1st showed that cases increased with an average of 55.6 cases per day, and that is up from 27 uh, during the period of July 12th through the 25th. Um, per, uh, the percent positivity also increased from 2% to 3.3% over that same period. 
And that's an update for county government employees. But what about the uh, Dane County Board? What's their plan going forward? So for public meetings, Dane County Board Chair Annalise Eicher said in a memo Monday that board meetings will continue remotely. The board had planned to meet in person and outdoors at the Lucia Community Education Center just for its August 19th meeting, uh, but the latest surge of COVID cases prompted to return that meeting to virtual. Um, and she also shared that, you know, for the time being, those meetings will be be remote and not in person. In her memo, Iger shared data on the county's virtual meetings. So from March 2020 through June, the county held 677 board commission and committee meetings. And then from January through June of this year, 2,573 people registered to attend a Dane County board commission or committee meeting. And of those who registered, about half registered to speak. Um, and then also a survey of 231 respondents found that 169 preferred hybrid meetings, 16 preferred in-person, and 46 preferred virtual. Um, so sort of because of these findings and the experience of going to virtual meetings, um, Annalise Eicher directed staff to take steps that allow the board to hold hybrid meetings once it's prudent and possible to do so. Um, you know, the return to in-person meetings at the city county building downtown also hinges on some audio-visual equipment upgrades in the building's main meeting room on the second floor um, and then four meeting rooms on the third floor. In June, the board approved a $372,000 contract for those upgrades. So those changes, which are expected to take several more months, are critical to allowing in-person and virtual participation. Additionally, the county board will need to act on changes to some ordinances and procedures in order to hold hybrid meetings. So because of all of these things, the Delta strain, this uh, these upgrades in construction at the city county building, and then some procedural changes, um, it's all pointing to the, the board really not getting together in person for a few months more. And moving right along, the deadline to hire Madison's first ever independent police monitor has been extended. Uh, Why'd that happen? Yeah, so interested candidates for this position now have more time to apply for the job after the city extended the deadline to August 16th. The original deadline passed on August 1st, and Madison's Director of Human Resources, Harper Donahue, told me that the extension didn't reflect a lack of quality with the applicants received so far and was solely based on just a limited pool of applicants. The city council created this position last September as a part of milestone police oversight measures. The position will have the capacity of examining policies, patterns, and practices, and promote long-term systemic change on an ongoing basis. The position will report to this new civilian oversight board that was also created last year. In addition to hiring the monitor, the board will conduct an annual review of the police chief and make policy recommendations to police, among other responsibilities. Uh, The board's chair, Keitra Burnett, told me in an email that she's hopeful a qualified candidate will emerge, so she's not been discouraged by the deadline extension. According to the job description, the auditor should have four years of experience in public or private administration, police oversight, or a related field, and should demonstrate an understanding of the community served. And that person should also have a post-secondary degree in a related field or an equivalent combination of education, training, and experience. Instead of a specific degree, the city will consider the equivalent combination of education, training, and experience. So if that sounds like you, maybe consider applying. You've got until August 16th. 
Um, also, this position will make between one hundred and three thousand dollars and one hundred and thirty nine thousand per year, which is the same salary range as some city department directors. So I'm uh, as this position is brand new, I'm really curious uh, what the pool of applicants will look like and of course, who the final person will be. So looking forward to talking about that on the show here soon. And for our final item here today, keeping our eyes forward, Madison will consider some zoning changes that will make living and sleeping outside in certain areas legal. Give me the rundown on those proposals. Mayor Satu Rhodes Conway and several alders are sponsoring an ordinance that would create a new special zoning district for something called mission camps. And those are outdoor sites for people living in tents or their vehicles that would be managed by a nonprofit religious institution or local government. And then in separate proposals, they're also hoping to streamline the process of creating tiny house villages like the ones operated by Occupy Madison and and allow for additional temporary encampments. All three proposals are scheduled to be reviewed by the Plan Commission um, at its September 20th meeting. So these proposed changes come as a group of people continue to camp in Rindell Park on the city's east side and as the city seeks property for a permanent men's shelter. The mayor has directed city staff to search for options for a possible temporary legal encampment, which would be managed by a nonprofit organization on city land that is not a park. Under the first proposed ordinance, a mission camp is a facility owned, operated, or funded by a nonprofit organization, religious group, or government entity that provides a campground area where people can live temporarily or permanently in tents or other portable housing like cars and campers. So a mission camp would be considered a permitted use, meaning it wouldn't need additional approval from the city's plan commission if Madison's local government were to operate or fund one. But additional approval would be required if another nonprofit or religious group were to run such a mission camp. Each camp would be required to have a management plan, contain no more than 30 tents, follow regulations related to open fires and cooking, and acquire a state campground license. The second proposal would create a zoning district for tiny house villages, providing a more straightforward process for future sites that accommodate more than three of these uh, tiny homes. Occupy Madison has had success with this model at their two locations, which, you know, one's on North 3rd Street and then the other is on Aberg Avenue. And Brenda Conkle, who is the president of Occupy Madison, said that these changes would be progress and a huge step forward. Now, finally, the third proposal would allow local governments, in addition to nonprofits and religious institutions, to establish portable shelter missions. So what I learned is that an example of that would be, you know, like a church sponsoring a smaller group of people to camp on its property. Madison actually currently allows uh, these portable shelter missions in certain places in the city, and they do require additional approval, but um, they haven't been used yet. And so this new proposal expands who can operate one to, and now that includes a government entity, and allows them as a permitted use in all zoning districts. So I'll, of course, be watching the discussion and, uh, you know, final vote on these things. But if they are approved, I think um, they'd be quite an interesting policy change for the city. And um, we'll, of course, be watching to see how it all plays out. Indeed, some interesting policy proposals there that we'll have to cover in a future episode because uh, we're out of time for today. I've been joined on the other end of the line, as always, by local government reporter for the Cap Times, Abigail Becker. Abigail, thanks so much for joining me this week. Thanks for having me, Jonah. 
And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, so two, de- two Wednesdays in a row now, I've really had my work cut out for me. And we've just had a tornado warning issued for southeastern Iowa County and southwestern Dane County. That was about nine minutes ago uh, for an area of rotation indicated by radar between Blanchardville and Mount Horeb. So do look out if you live in that area. I'll say more about what's going on in the radar momentarily. As impressive as the setup for severe weather was yesterday with the plenty of low-level energy in the form of moisture and heat for upward motion, it was lacking in the stronger upper-level winds that we typically need for good storm organization, and that was the key component that moved into place today as cooler air started to push in a little closer from the northwest across Minnesota. Those faster wind speeds aloft are reflected on the water vapor image of the continental U.S. that you can view at the top of the WORT weather webpage. Pardon me. Those faster winds interacted immediately with thunderstorm updrafts once they got going this afternoon up north of La Crosse, producing a series of supercell thunderstorms that then raked eastward across the central and northeastern counties of the state, maintaining their individual structures and updrafts as they went, many quite likely with rotation and at least some producing tornadoes. Prominent hook echoes could be seen on the radar on trailing corners of many of those cells as they approach the northwestern part of the list area between 2 and 3 this afternoon with the most vigorous of the lot, a storm which blew up in central Monroe County just after 2, producing a large long-track tornado which passed east-northeastward through Juneau County just north of New Lisbon and then across the river past Adams Friendship and on over into Washara County. I'll be interested to see how that tornado compares with the EF3 storm which we had in Boscobel last week. The line of thunderstorms has lost some of its strength as it back built southwestward along and ahead of the incoming cold front down through Iowa. And that's been especially true for areas slightly further to the north and east, like Dane County, by and large, where falling antecedent rains from the thick downwind storm anvils reduce some of the low-level potential energy for convection. We do currently have a storm moving into the area. It's the one that has been... uh, Outlook for a tornado warning in southern Iowa and southwestern Dane County. The incoming cold front should help this de- help stabilize the lower atmosphere on a more permanent basis as we go forward after tonight, though. Uh, with the front not still not moving terribly quickly southeast, though, tomorrow we're likely to get at least one more modest surge in dew points in the morning as the winds crank up again from the southwest. Nevertheless, all the high-resolution models are showing convective activity tomorrow combined basically along the Illinois border or further south. So most of the listening areas should be dry once tonight's storms pass. After that, we'll have four beautiful days of passing surface-high pressure out of Canada, which will be nice relief after having to worry about all these tornadoes for several days running. As far as tonight is concerned, I'll have one more look at the radar of the storm currently, and I did see uh, some minor indicated rotation in the areas south of Dodgeville over to Barneveld in that region. That storm is passing generally from west to east, so do uh, take cover in southwestern Dane County as that storm passes through. It's likely to pass south of Madison, just a few small cells back to the north and west now, and uh, largely the rest of the listening area should be clear after that storm to our southwest passes further east. 
Storm should clear southeast of the area in general by the mid-evening period, with the skies then clearing after that. Though I don't know if we'll quite manage that spectacular late-day breakout of sun that we saw yesterday. We may develop some late-night fog in some of the sheltered low spots since we'll have light southwesterly winds overnight. Temperatures will drop to the mid-60s. Incidentally, if it does clear, you might have a look at the Perseid meteors after the moon goes down later on. Tomorrow, areas south and southeast of Madison may continue to see some system clouds, but areas further north should clear out quite nicely, I think. We may see some limited cumulus growth, but I think primarily we'll just see some passing mid and high clouds from time to time, especially later in the day as convection possibly redevelops down to our south. Temperatures will reach the mid-80s on southwesterly winds increasing to 8 to 15 miles per hour and veering more west and northwest in the afternoon. And the somewhat sticky morning dew point still up in the upper 60s will dry out and become more comfortable by later in the day. Temperatures tomorrow night should be mostly in the upper 50s with clear skies on lighter northwesterly winds. And Friday should be beautiful, mostly sunny with a high temperature in the upper 70s with northwesterly winds at 48 miles per hour and pretty much ditto for Saturday and Sunday. Skies should remain mostly clear under high pressure and daytime temperatures will be in the upper 70s with overnight lows in the mid 50s with generally light winds through the period. Just now down here at the station on Bedford Street, the dew point temperature is 83. The dew point is 74. Very sticky indeed. Winds are out of the south at 8 miles per hour, still gusting up to 15. Uh, generally overcast outside with uh, deeper clouds moving in and uh, barometer reading at 29.70 inches of mercury and unsteady over the past few hours. Now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to August 1967, when the city focused on tension between the minority community and the police department. Urban renewal came to South Madison and the war in Vietnam hit home. Here's Stu Levitan with this week's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, August 1967. After a summer sizzling with what it calls, quote, tension-filled incidents with racial overtones, the Equal Opportunities Commission holds a series of public hearings in neighborhoods with large minority populations, hoping to gain some understanding and tamp down tensions. A later report documents just how bad things were. More than a dozen racial conflicts all over town, including, quote, numerous hostile confrontations, resulting in fights between white and black students near East High, with, quote, conflict and hostility spreading to Central High Negroes. There's, quote, evidence of white apprehension and hostility when a black family moves to the Monroe Street area, and vandalism to homes and cars of black families living around Odana Road and Toke Boulevard. In the Sherman Terrace area, a white woman pickets the new home of a black family. On August 2nd, about 150 Eastside residents, 
about 20 of them African-American, attend an emotional hearing at Marquette School, where they tell commissioners and Mayor Otto Feske about what they perceive as race-based police brutality and other discrimination. Several black speakers also criticize the police department for still employing only white officers. The next night, a comparable crowd on the south side tells similar stories at Abraham Lincoln School. Speakers call for a civilian review board of police actions, which liberal Mayor Feske rejects because that's already a function of the Police and Fire Commission. Sometime between the two hearings, the police department takes an important step toward someday hiring its first non-white officer. For the first time, it adds the statement, an equal opportunity employer, to its job advertisement running that week in the daily newspapers. The statement was not included when the ad was placed, but was added as a correction after the department's all-white hiring practices came under fire at the August 2nd public hearing. On the 4th, the commission and public hear from Inspector Herman Thomas and the six policemen who patrol the South Madison and William Street areas. They all insist they have never hassled or hurt any black residents. I'm amazed at the small number of incidents and the ease with which we can communicate with the colored people, says South Madison Patrolman Gerald Eastman. Everyone downplays the possibility of violence. A few weeks later, the EOC issues a new brochure entitled, quote, When Members of a Minority Group Move into Your Neighborhood. In mid-December, the Commission reviews the hearings and the state of race relations in Madison in a disturbing 13-page report. It finds that, quote, a serious lack of rapport exists between Madison minority group members and the police, due largely to, quote, a past reputation for discrimination and a general denial of the respect for the dignity of the Negro citizen. There is real fear of harassment and retaliation. Efforts must be made by the police department to ensure the unbiased treatment of all citizens, regardless of race, creed, color, or economic status. The EOC calls for, quote, the active recruitment and hiring of Negroes and other minority group members to dispel the attitudes created by past actions of the Madison Police Department and says, quote, intensive and extensive training and education for officers at all levels in minority problems and the prevention and control of racial incidents must be instituted. Diversity is also on the mind of school superintendent Douglas Ritchie, who tells the Board of Education he wants, quote, a cosmopolitan staff embracing all nationalities and races, but that there is, quote, a shortage of Negroes in the professions and a lack of applicants. A federally mandated survey in the fall shows that only 13 of Madison's 1,623 instructional staff are black. Of the 33,522 pupils, only 512 are non-white with 16 of the 54 schools having no black students at all. The four schools with the highest number of black students are Franklin Elementary, 101, Central High, 50, Marquette Elementary, 49, and Lincoln Junior High, 48. Ritchie is also seemingly supportive of free speech and political activism for teachers. When five Madison teachers are arrested for handing out anti-war leaflets at a teacher convention outside the new Dane County Memorial Coliseum, which police call unauthorized use of the Dane County Fairgrounds, 
Ritchie gives his after-the-fact permission, and they are quickly released on order of District Attorney James Bowl. The neighborhood with the greatest concentration of black residents may soon see improvements, as the council revives the long-stalled urban renewal project for South Madison. In late June, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development had canceled the project's $1.6 million grant because the city failed to make sufficient progress during the three-year planning period. So the city buckled down, and this month the Common Council unanimously approves plans for the 72-acre, 15-block project. It will rehabilitate 155 of the area's 221 substandard structures, reconstruct several streets to Madison standards, and improve Penn Park. In early October, HUD approves the plan and authorizes the Madison Redevelopment Authority to begin work on the project even before the grant is fully processed. By late fall, the MRA has acquired about 25 of the properties it will raise, putting the project so far ahead of schedule that street reconstruction and park development are moved up to the spring of 1968. Something for the kids at the Dane County Coliseum, British teeny bopper stars Herman's Hermits singing all their hits. Opening is another band from England, which so far is far less successful, but much louder, especially their finale. They call themselves The Who. And the war in Vietnam hangs heavy on Madison this month. On the 7th, Army Specialist 4th Class Vernon J. Stitch, 21, son of Vernon Stitch, 2112 Atwood Avenue, a heavy truck driver, is killed in a vehicle crash in Cameron Bay. He had been in country about 75 days. And Army Corporal Mark W. Newman, 20, West High Class of 1965, a paratrooper with the 101st Airborne Division, is killed while on patrol on August 25th. Newman, whose father, Master Sergeant Willard F. Newman, 1833 Baker Road, is the supervisor of Army recruiting in Wisconsin, had volunteered for six months extra duty in Vietnam. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, vaccine-taking, mask-wearing, sacrifice-honoring WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. This evening, thanks for listening to WRT's live local news at 6. Your reporter this evening was Jade Isiri Ramos. Special thanks to feature contributors Abby Becker and Stu Lovitan. Jonah Chester produced the newscast. Ken Brady and Austin Exum got us on the air tonight and spun the dials mixing our sounds. And Charlie Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.